Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, then we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses Podcast. folks this is christian haynes of gamers with glasses and i am happy to bring you our first new episode of the year 2022 Ooh. Uh, I, yeah and i am yeah. joined by nate schmidt hello and roger whitson hi there and you know just we've got a bunch of stuff coming up we're going to talk about games we're going to talk about some tv shows but i wanted to let people know that by the time you're hearing this we should have uh, an interview up from Dang. Dang is the creators of the great little indie boomer shooter, Boomerang X. Um, and we'll have another interview coming up later this month uh, with Thomas uh, Vandenberg, who you may know from a couple games, including uh, Kingdom Two Crowns and more recently Cloud Gardens. So look forward to that. Oh, I uh, love Cloud Gardens. Yeah, it's great. That's game, awesome. Right? I didn't even realize we oh. interviewed him. That's, I'm going to have to listen to that. <laughs> no, we're interviewing him. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, oh, we're also, interviewing him. Christian, do you want to, just in case anyone is as far out of the loop as I am, do you want to just really quickly clarify what you mean by boomer shooter? Yeah. So what's a boomer shooter? So uh, it's not like an okay boomer, like you're not, it sounds, oh, it's not a there, boomer. there's it's kind not of an like okay boomer, boomer quality to boomer. Okay. Shooter. Okay. Good. Yeah. Fill us in. Yeah, no, it's just, it's these, these retro shooters, uh, like, uh, dusk and, um, you know, uh, devil daggers and the like, uh, which hark back to that, like mid nineties period of shooters, doom hex or hexen, um, all the way through the unfortunate Daikatana, um, you know, the Romero, the Ed stuff. Um, and yeah, folks have been bringing it back and Boomerang X is a, it's a great version of it. And the interview is a lot of fun. These are, I mean, these are some young folks uh, that made this game, their first game coming out of uh, under, their undergraduate game design program. And it was a kind of a sort of patched together out of a game jam and their student project. And then they just sort of ran with it. Um, but yeah, I'll leave that for folks who are interested in listening to the interview, but it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Very That's cool. great. Great games come out of jams. There's always fun stuff that comes out of it. Anytime there's a full length that's like started with a jam, especially a jam on uh, itch.io. I'm always like really excited about it. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, it's funny, you know, it's a new year, it's 2022. And so of course you hear all podcasts and websites doing like, what games are we looking forward to? Mm. Um, and there's a lot of the big games and I'm looking forward to a lot of those too. Your uh, Elden Rings, your Dying Light 2s, your yep. Horizon Forbidden West. I'm, I'm legitimately looking forward to those. But what you're not hearing about in part because they don't have hard dates, it's a lot of these great indie games that are going to kind of just pop up. Um, some from publishers you've never heard of or not from publishers at all, some from Devolver, um, you know, and I'm looking forward to seeing what those are going to be. Um, you know, and there's a couple of websites like Polygon did a pretty good uh, indie games to look for list. Uh, Rock, Paper, Shotgun did too, I believe. So, yeah, lots of great stuff to look forward to, but why don't we talk games? Uh, Roger, what have you been playing? Uh, so I have two games to talk about, one of which uh, Nate is playing with me, or I'm playing with Nate. Um, the first one, though, I, I'll just get out of the way. It's, um, well, not get out of the way. It's a, it's a pretty great expansion of a game that came out a couple of years ago called Death's Gambit Afterlife. And the developers, when they first um, came out with Death's Gambit, which I played a while ago, uh, it's actually this this uh, Souls-like Metrovania. It was actually one of the first non-Dark Souls Souls-like games to come to be announced at, when Dark Souls was, was sort of gaining popularity years ago. And it I took didn't realize years. it was announced that long ago. Yeah, it was announced a while ago, and it took them wow. quite a long time to to come out. Um, the the original Death Gambit. Um, and so it's it's the the game itself is just great if you like those things um you play this you play this uh, this this acolyte of death although that's kind of a misnomer because it's one of the one of the character classes but this person who's working for death to make sure people who are trying to be immortal to actually die very similar in some ways to uh death's door in terms of its overall overall storyline um and uh but the new the new afterlife version which you get free if you've ever purchased the game sort of doubles uh the content it doubles the map um and adds six new bosses and so it's actually a pretty major upgrade that came out um and is it all about like post you know the original game content or is it integrated and like mixed it's into totally it? integrated so oh, wow. so different levels would just open up in the middle of the game as I played it. Um, and it's, it's actually like, it's, I wouldn't quite say that it's double the game, but it's, it's close. It's close to that. So it's almost like, it's almost like Death Gambit 1.5 in a way. Um, and the thing I love about this game. So if you love Hollow Knight, it's a very, it's, it came out, I think it came out. I think the original Death Gambit technically came out before Hollow Knight. Um, but it it has some very similar kind of things going on, although it's less cutesy and more sort of sort of harsh and realistic. Um, I do love one of the things I do love is is Death, who um, you're, you're serving. Death. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's kind of. Have you have you all played it yet? Death Gambit? Death Gambit? No. No, I've watched some play of it, but I haven't played it. I don't think my favorite thing is how he sort of gently sort of like makes fun of you every time you die. So he's always like, <laughs> he's always like, maybe it's a very soul thing. <laughs> Are you going to die again? That's what was, it's just pretty great. So Death Gambit, Afterlife, anyone who's interested in Metroidvania's souls like that intersection, it's perfect for them. Um, and then the second one, which I want to invite Nate to 
come in on is yes. actually for our, I guess our January uh, event is we had kind of a, a game swap because January is kind of famous for being somewhat light uh, in terms of the games that are released. So we each got uh, together and suggested games for each other. And Nate was the person to suggest for me. And he suggested uh, the new Amnesia Rebirth that came out last year. So, uh, Nate, I wonder if you could talk about this, your history with these games and like, and like why you wanted me to play it. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we had a couple kind of back and forth trying to figure out platform compatibility. So that was kind of <laughs> part of it. It was like, what, mm -hmm. what can I do? Because so many of the games that I really like to play are just like random things that... Mm, we're definitely built for Windows and nominally run on a Mac, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. And maybe if you know a lot, if you like have the right uh, type of screwdriver, you could get the game to run on a Mac, you know. Bootstrap um, it or something. Bootstrap yeah, Windows. Yeah. yeah, that's always thinking. <laughs> so um, we kind of talked back and forth and. I suggested Amnesia because I guess in part just because it's like I have played it so much. The Amnesia games, I played them so much over the last year or so. And um, they worked on the platform that you have. But I have a, a real sort of, I guess, I don't know that I'd call it a soft spot, but I have a real enthusiasm for the Amnesia games, uh, even though, you know, they're not, they're not, perfect and as sort of atmospheric horror type games go you know there are more i would argue there are more influential games in the genre than the first amnesia like uh you know it's not i don't think the first amnesia is silent hill uh i think mm. some people would disagree with me about that i think uh Blake would disagree with me about that. I remember we were talking about amnesia. Um, but I've been playing those games over the last couple of months because I got tired of all the horror movies on Netflix and I'd basically watched them all. And I was looking for something that would kind of, um, I don't know, scratch that cinematic itch. And I've actually found, how far along are you, Roger? Um, I think that I'm maybe 20% of the way through. The okay. Okay. Then I'll be careful what I say about what does and doesn't happen. But I found that the amnesia games and rebirth probably has the most interesting setup anyway, but the other ones kind of lean more. The first one is more Lovecraftian machine for pigs is more sort of Victorian horror. There are very, very recognizable tropes you know, in, in both of those, but the stories tend to be kind of deliciously ambiguous for me. I don't know. Uh, there, there are things mm -hmm. that it, it doesn't, you want to keep playing, not just to kind of get to what the next scary thing is, or just for the satisfaction of solving the puzzle, but because the game really doesn't necessarily wear its narrative on its sleeve. There really, you, you know, I think we talk a lot today about kind of environmental storytelling in games, but e even all the way back to Amnesia, the Dark Descent, you were really seeing that you could find out as much or as little of the story as you wanted, depending on how much or how little you explored 
mm-hmm. the game. And that's something I've always liked about those. Um, although I'll admit, sometimes I look up the puzzles. Oh, I totally look up. Sometimes I get tired of figuring out, trying to of like do the puzzles. Surrounded by yeah. fake gamers. <laughs> <laughs> Did Christian just call us casuals, Roger? Yeah. I totally. Yeah. Like, you might as I'll well be playing it. mobile games like Candy Crush. I'm, I'm so bad. Like I'll be like walking around in one part of of like of like a building or something, right, with the darkness and everything, and die several times because I freak out, um, and. I'm literally looking for a crank, right? Yep. As soon as I look it up and it's like, look at a crank that's in a box right by the place. Where so Resident Evil. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so annoying. Here's the <laughs> handle of the crank. Oh, but where does the handle go? <laughs> right. right. Oh, I like that though, because I think the thing that sets know. amnesia, yes. <laughs> I think that especially the thing that sets amnesia rebirth apart from Resident Evil is not just that there's no weapon really most of the time yeah. uh, but that there's that splash screen which maybe comes across as a little bit pretentious when you first start the game that says this isn't a game that you play to win mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i feel like resident evil as much love as i have for that franchise too resident evil I think has a sense still of victory in it. Like there's a sense oh, yeah. triumphing over whatever the scary thing is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like amnesia kind of keeps that tension alive in a cooler way. And therefore, I mean, I think you pointed out, Roger, like you've you found like one, you've encountered like a total of one monster. So I think so there's far, only right? one monster. I think there's only one monster. Maybe there's yeah. not. Well, but I, I think mean, there's only one, but I've only encountered, it's like a golem. The ghoul thing. looking thing, right? The, like, the ghoul yeah. killed me once. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the game doesn't fill its whole runtime with constant feelings of being chased with constant yeah. beasts and enemies and shit. They put them in where they're, where they're meaningful. And I yeah. I like that. I again I don't think the amnesia games are perfect, but I really like that. And I think that Rebirth in particular has like definitely the most compelling lead uh, and the most compelling narrative. So I think the, I think yeah, the characters think? and I haven't I haven't played the other re, the other amnesia, so I don't know how to compare. But like two things that really sort of popped out of me. One is it's it's very invested in psychology both yeah. in terms of how you engage with the game, but then also in terms of its themes, like it's kind of talking about people's issues all throughout the game. Um, that one point in the very beginning of, of, and I'm sure that I'll be taking this more, you take laudanum literally, right? Like yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. And uh, so, and yeah. <laughs> and then also the other thing that I just love about this game, yeah, it, it's so invested in the characters to the point where like, um, one of the characters, if you ever, like in the very beginning, you know, not all of them survive. And if you ever come up with to one of the characters and they're dead, you're like, oh, no, like yeah. I actually had that visceral reaction um, of of sadness because yeah. these are real like they feel like real people uh, in a lot of ways. And so I, I think that it does that really well. And I agree with you. I think the whole 
this goes back to what you're saying, the kind of cinematic element of it is in the fact that it's really about, it's really about atmosphere and mood and um, building kind of fear through that rather than constantly shoving your face in it in, into like some kind of monster or something like that. Yeah. I'm glad you like, I'm glad you've liked it so far. I, I really mm-hmm. genuinely am, but I, yeah. And, and I think that in terms of psychology, cause I remember there was an episode of this show where we talked about this kind of at length, I think maybe Ed was there when we mm. talked about quote unquote insanity mechanics oh, in, right. in yeah. video games That's right. and the first am- the first amnesia which i should start calling amnesia the dark descent and not keep calling it the first amnesia um amnesia the dark descent is perhaps the worst offender in that reg- well <laughs> i mean call of the call of cthulhu games <laughs> kind of take that take that and mm-hmm. run with it too i'll talk but, about am- that <laughs> yeah amnesia the dark descent really really did that and in rebirth they kind of, mm, I don't feel like reskinned is the right word, but they changed the language around it so that it's not just like, oh, you're going crazy because it's scary in the dark. You know, it, it's it's um, part of the story. There's something that I don't want to talk about too much that's maybe going on with your body that kind mm-hmm. of causes your mm-hmm. reaction. It's mm-hmm. not just like this kind of awkward representation of, you know, you're losing your mind because you're scared. There's something uh, embodied about it in Rebirth that I think was, a, I think it's a smart sort of reinterpretation of something that uh, didn't sit with me as well in some of the earlier amnesia games but i don't want to talk about it too much because you might find out yeah. as you play i and sense then... that i don't know exactly what it is but it, it seems like some kind of illness or something that you yeah have and that like when you when you die or when you die of fear because you can die of being too afraid you wake up and like you can see your arms are like red like yeah like the blood vessels are at the surface and so it's yeah it's definitely the sense of this sort of embodied sense of fear which i think is really really fascinating particularly given um you know the fact i think that as you say like a lot of other games that represent fear it's often very cognitive or very like there's some game element that it references rather than your body itself yeah yeah exactly exactly no i really does your i imagine it maybe does on the ps5 do you do you play in the dark yeah okay does your controller light up when you light up? It does. Yeah. I, oh, I don't. I actually don't know. I actually mine, don't think. It, I I wonder oh. if I wondered about how the port went with that. Um, because I was just thinking about if I know for sure that happened when I was playing Dark Descent and Machine for Pigs, but I can't remember if it happened in Rebirth or not. That's but cool. if it, keep yeah. an eye out for that little detail okay. next time it's that you're in the dark, because I just, the first time that happened, it kind of actually freaked me out a little bit because I wasn't mm. prepared for it. But that is a sweet little detail too. Anyway. The only thing that's a little weird is like, I feel like, and it, it makes sense that it would, but like, I feel like the fear mechanic sometimes turns on a little too quickly. Yeah. Like I'll go into one corner and it, and it's the one corner that I haven't turned the, the candle on and I'll start to freak out. And I'm like, Okay, dude, you're in like a mostly lit room. It's just this one <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. 
Yeah. yeah. Although I have found sometimes that that does happen. Uh, I've also found sometimes that happens to me though. And because that mechanic is also tied to your surroundings, sometimes that'll happen to me. And then I'll look and there's like a corpse or yeah, a true. skeleton or something that's, that's in true. the corner that I didn't notice no. before. And, and that's maybe part of it, but, uh, but that is true. It can, it can get a little bit, um, over enthusiastic with that and the puzzles can't there there does eventually come a point where sometimes i look up the puzzles because i just can't 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 do it anymore i'm never i again like with the puzzles my brain is doing something entirely different than what is obvious that i need to be doing yes like i just always <laughs> i'm like running upstairs and it's like why are you going up the stairs <laughs> exactly oh. and but and I think rebirth in particular gives you a lot of places you can get to that just do nothing. There's mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. lot of red herrings yeah. in, in rebirth. And so in a game that's so full of puzzles that can get to be a little bit frustrating. So um, I don't know. I mean, I know that I know that Christian was making fun of us earlier in in jest. So I'm I'm not going to poke back at him too hard. But I do wonder oh, if there's, I do wonder if there's a degree to which um, the internet almost becomes a kind of um, accessibility mechanic. Like if there's a degree to which when totally. a game doesn't come built in with its own kind of like extra hints if you need them, that there's that the walkthrough isn't just like a way to cheat the game but is actually part of the game it's part of the network of of texts that is the game and i think is, um you know therefore makes yeah. the game more accessible i would argue that all of the dark souls games are designed with the idea that that you are engaging with a community outside of the game in yeah. order to get through things like and like there are literally parts in those games where you couldn't there's no way you could have figured that out on yourself on your own mm -mm. Mm -mm. Yeah, there's like Even, a collective critical mass that's you know making those games possible and making the experience of those games valuable which in some ways i'm i'm not here to sort of write off the whole dark souls community of which i am a part but like in some ways that was pretty optimistic too right oh, totally. it's like the yeah. number of times you just get yeah. you know get owned by some asshole dressed as giant dad <laughs> is just like enough you know, I, I'm not sure that that was necessarily, well, it doesn't matter what they had in mind because that's what happened. But I, some of I those do, times though, yeah. some of those times are just brilliant. They're so bizarre that yes. they get seared into your memory. So really quickly, because we don't want to go down this path again. <laughs> no, we can't. Maybe. Elden Ring comes out next month, Christian, and it's the only got, thing we're talking about. Coming. Yep. <laughs> I went, I enough. One time, one time I invaded this place and I went into this world and there was this guy like dressed up as Jesus Christ and he like held one of the um, one of the chimes and was like blessing things. And I, I was just... <laughs> I was just mesmerized. I was like, what the hell? And then some one of his friends came up from behind me and backstabbed me and I died. And it was like, <laughs> that was amazing. Like, that was brilliant. I'm glad oh, I had that weird experience. That's very funny. That's good. But that's kind of been on my mind because I've been playing Celeste with my son, who's seven. And the accessible 
the ways to make that game more accessible are really powerful in ways that I did not appreciate before I sat down and played it with him. Like Mm -hmm. he kind of couldn't enjoy the original version of that game. And that's not a problem with the original version of the game. It wasn't necessarily made for seven-year-olds and it certainly wasn't made for seven-year-olds who aren't, who play switch so much that they're not used to using a keyboard, using keyboard controls. But man, those accessibility options really made open that game up for him and made it available as something he could enjoy. And it kind of gave me a new appreciation for that kind of stuff. So that's great. Anyway, mm-hmm. I I say that f- for me, my rule is about 10 minutes. I'll give any puzzle 10 minutes of my time. And then if I'm really invested in it, I'll kind of plug away at it a little bit more. But if I'm annoyed with it after 10 minutes, I'm, I look it up. I'm going to look it I'm up. I'm just not a puzzled guy. Like, I just don't care. Like, like, and that just may be a, a, like a downfall of my own status as a gamer or a game person or whatever. Um, but I remember playing, what was it? The witness, the follow-up to braid. Mm-hmm. I played it a bit. And then I was like, what is this? What is even going on? And I just I really like the witness. <laughs> I'm sure it's great. It's just not, I'm not a puzzle person. And so whenever I have play puzzle platformers or puzzle games that have like little puzzles in them, I'm just like, I don't care. I'm just, I just want to get through this. Honestly, I'm not a big puzzle person either. Like, and I'm the same way as Nate, where I'll give it like 10 minutes and then I'm just going to look it up because I don't care. Um, The only exceptions being if I happen to be playing a game that's not been released yet and there's not a walkthrough, which is always like, um, (laughs) but uh when I know I'm going into a game that's solely puzzles, if it's really well done, like the witness, that's like the exception. And then like, you know, I'll do the crossword, the Sunday crossword puzzle uh, with my partner and, you know, sort of, she's better at them than I am. So it sort of works out. Um, But, uh, but yeah, otherwise they, they become like sort of this question that they raise about what are you actually in the game for? Right. Right. Like when you're playing Tomb Raider or something, are you in it for the exploration and the gunplay, or are you in it for the tomb puzzles? Right. And it's well, like, and to be fair, like there might be people in there for the puzzles because yeah. there's a long history of. It reminds me quite a bit of Indiana Jones in that sense, right? Where you have like the tombs and they have the puzzles to get through them, or you die. So there's there is that kind of history to that to that idea, but like. It's just not, I mean, I think rather, I just think it's not for me. It's not my, the way I game. No, but I guess what I was saying, one of the things I like about the fact that we're gaming in a sort of post-internet age is the fact that you can make that decision, right? Like you can play a game and you can kind of carve, you know, a version of it out for yourself that works for the particular sort of pleasure centers in your brain as it were. Wasn't there a, a segment of that high score documentary on Netflix where they talked to some of the people who used to work for that Nintendo hotline number that you could call mm. and you could get like game help. If you couldn't figure out Zelda one, you the true could... story behind the invention of the internet <laughs> for real, for real. And, and it like, but the people who worked there had to actually know the games in and out for the most yeah. part, like Nintendo would give them some information because there's like one temple in Zelda one you can only get to if you happen to use the, the, 
flame producing, I think it's a lantern, maybe candle, flame producing lantern on one bush, one specific mm-hmm. bush mm-hmm. out of all the other mm-hmm. bushes on the screen. And you get that kind of info. But I don't know. I just I think that's really fascinating that this has always been a collective endeavor, except that now you don't have to pay a 900 number for it. Those 900 numbers. Wow. Those were really <laughs> I just remember. And it wasn't just Nintendo, like they would have like the X-Men 900 number and it was be like $7.99 a minute and so tempting. I never did it. I never did it. But like, I'm sure. $7.99 a minute good. and you could talk the really breathy version of Mystique. <laughs> <laughs> we could do it. <laughs> we could do We could just do it. We could charge people $7.99 for this episode. Hey. It's Wolverine. You want to hear my? You want to hear my claws? <laughs> All right, folks. I think we're gonna wrap the episode up. That's the, it. Yeah. Uh, that is it. You're out. First, George first episode Santa's of the year. <laughs> first episode done. <laughs> I mean, you can't beat Snicked. <laughs> no. Um, so Nate, you have been playing Inscription and I know you've been playing Cozy Grove because I edited a piece you wrote about it. Great piece people should look out for. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Um, yeah, I don't want to talk too much about it because it's already in writing, but Cozy Grove gave me thoughts. Cozy Grove gave me a lot of thoughts, uh, which I guess if you haven't looked at Cozy Grove at all, it's really could be described as like if animal crossing had some more goth stuff in it in in a lot of ways you know in, in a lot of ways that's, that's that's how you could describe it and and the game sets itself up for that comparison very obviously on purpose from the very beginning it's not like i'm talking the game down by saying that it wears its influences loudly on its sleeve and uh i've enjoyed it there are things about it that I think are more meaningful than Animal Crossing. The NPCs on your island are sort of ghostly beings that you actually want to help, that you're actually trying to do something for in a meaningful way. Like you're kind of trying to help them recover their memories of who they were uh, in life, which to me was a lot more satisfying than just like trying to be the, you know, biggest asshole in town with the biggest house and or garage or whatever. I don't know. I haven't really upgraded my new horizons house very far um, because the, the, the slopes and bridges cost so much money. If I want to just get to the rest of my Island, I have to pay like 9 million bells or whatever. So um, can I have a quick, 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 please quick please. aside, because... unless it's about dark souls, please. No, it's not. <laughs> um, how would you compare a game like Stardew Valley to like Animal Crossing? Because I've never played the new Animal Crossing. Um, I don't know. I haven't really played Stardew Valley that much, but I mean, I think that Animal Crossing is especially New Horizons is really delightful in its endless customizability. Like you can if there is something that you would like to try to build or make or do, 
there's probably a way to do it within the, you know, within reason. I don't think you could, for example, like people will do in Minecraft or something. I don't think you could rebuild the forest temple from Ocarina of Time or anything like that, you know, in, in New Horizons. But there's a lot of really cool options for building new things, making new things. Um, I think that they definitely have made the crafting. It's a game with a crafting mechanic that I'm willing to play, which is kind of rare, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, but they've, they've made it workable. They've, put fun new things into the updates i guess i guess that's maybe one difference although again i don't really know stardew valley that well is that new horizons uh sticks really closely to animal crossing shtick of changing with the seasons in real time and so there's always fun like new stuff to do mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. new items you can get and whatnot and i don't know i mean your enjoyment of it is going to depend on how satisfying the experience of acquiring new digital assets is for you. I I don't think it has the same kind of like, like you're not necessarily, you can grow things, but like to what end, you know, Mm -hmm. you sell Mm -hmm. them and and you get money and then it's less about less about the gardening and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And more about, sort of um customizing an ideal living space i mean it's a Mm -hmm. it's a life sim i have a bookshelf and a turtle like in and and a room and a bonsai tree that doesn't die animal crossing is the game where i have a bonsai tree that doesn't die and that's my one sentence review of animal crossing horizons Wow. wow cool awesome (laughs) <laughs> but but Co- cozy grove riffs on that in some really cool ways that uh that i've enjoyed i've enjoyed playing there's some hidden object quests that get a little bit annoying but again talking about accessibility there's a creature on the island where if the hidden object is too hard to find you can talk to that creature and she will tell you where it is and oh, that's smart yeah you get to pick whether you want to ask about it or not um, so you can take all the time you want trying to figure it out and then you can get help if you want that and you don't even have to look it up. What else did I tell you I was playing? Oh, the inscription. inscription. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Lies, all lies. <laughs> What's happening anymore? <laughs> what day is it? Oh, <clears throat> I don't know what day it is in a manner of speaking because I don't know what day the podcast will be up. But um, I have inscription is kind of the game that all the other websites really talked up a lot at the end of last year. So I don't know if I have much more to add than that. I do think it's really fun and good. And I don't, Christian, have you played it at all? I thought, you yeah, I, so I played how to put this, that it's not too spoilery, right? It's so hard to talk. Yeah. I played into what I would call the second section of the game um, after it sort of reveals itself as being, um, more complicated than it first even seems. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Could I ask though, and I think we can talk about this without spoiling anything. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you feel about Inscription as a person who likes deck builders? 
Yeah. So I actually don't love the deck building portion of the game. Um, because when I, if I'm going to build a deck, I want to have some drafting mechanic that's relatively efficient. Mm. And what happens in the second part of the game is deck building gets really sort of introduced and you have to acquire these cards in a way that to me is not as efficient or interesting as say a monster train or a slay the spire or some of these other games where I like the deck building. Um, I feel like where inscription shines is the narrative it introduces surrounding those things, which I don't yeah. want to say too much about, which is very much like about games and about what we get out of games and about horror and how horror and just game play or game design might be closely related to one another. Yeah. And I did enjoy that. And I do want to go back to it and finish it. I think I just got sidetracked by some other stuff. I also, Oh, I won't get into it because it would be too spoilery. I had a portion of the game that I missed because of doing childcare that oh. I was not able to get back to right. uh, without replaying the game. And because of that, that took some of the steam out of it. Yeah, yeah. And there are a couple parts like that that I can think of too, where I kind of feel like, hmm. And, you know, I guess in a sense there's, it's not like it's a bad thing for a game to have some replayability built into it. But if I'm not probably going to have time to go back and replay that game because I've been writing all this stuff for this video game website and I don't have time to go back and replay old stuff anymore. Um, exactly. <laughs> new stuff is only good. <laughs> it's only good here at Gamers with Glasses. We only believe in new video games. Yes. That's why this make it new. <laughs> this entire podcast for half of it, I was talking about Amnesia: The Dark Descent, which came out in like I don't know if I say the wrong year. Some two thousand ten ish, something yeah, like that. I think so. Christian can be the one that falls on that dagger, but um, two thousand ten. I guess Whoa, that right. yeah. you didn't fall on anything. Nice, nice. But I ha I have I I asked because inscription is kind of the first deck builder other than magic that has kind of captured my attention. Oh, that's great. Um and I mean you're wrong, and, but that's okay. Yeah, no, I know, I know, I know, but it is something that I've uh enjoyed quite a bit. I mean, the other day you said that Daggerfall is the best open world game on Discord. So we can, I mean, we can agree to be wrong. It's a it's a fact. I, I look, agree with that. Out here on the podcast on the internet, I'm not gonna make you two say how old you are, but I can it's guess why you're saying Daggerfall. <laughs> Daggerfall is better than Breath of the Wild. Oh, Are you yeah. Really gonna oh, come yeah. out? Oh, oh yeah. you oh, guys. Yeah. I do like the music. The, I do like the music. The dungeons I, that you may or may not be able to get out of because they're so entirely random. Oh, yeah, that's everyone's you might favorite fall down part. A pit and never Being get out. frustrated. Everyone plays open Falling world games. Through the world, I used to call it. I fell <laughs> through the world. Like you just you just fall into this pit. And suddenly it's like you see from the vantage point of God, it's, you have these like, like, I don't know any in your game that gives you such epiphanies. This is nostalgia. About, 
the nature of reality nostalgia my so my favorite thing to do in daggerfall was to kick people out of their houses and like board up their houses and just (laughs) occupy their houses and then sometimes i would just like move a bunch of stuff into it so that they couldn't get in and i would just like take over their house in a town near some dungeon i wanted to go in um but i was way more about you can't do that in design. Breath of the Wild. You can't I'm, do that. I'm not saying Daggerfall's not good. I'm just saying best open world game ever. I beg to differ. And well, until, need I say again, next month, Elden Ring is coming Elden out. Ring. Well, Elden Ring's not out yet. It's not out yet. It's not out oh yet, God. Nate. So we still ha- it still has the still has the title. All I right. feel you. All right. I did. After you mentioned that, I did listen to almost nothing but the Daggerfall soundtrack. That's for the amazing. Next, like, two days. It's brilliant. I really enjoyed it a lot. Apparently, the the guy who did a lot of it now does music for slot machines. And, yeah, that's what you were saying. That's yeah, weird. you can look it up and you can hear it. But it's fun. It was all done um, on software synthesizers. And I won't say anything more about that, because if I start talking about synthesizers, this will become a different kind of podcast that nobody here wants to listen to. Amen. Uh <laughs> That intro, no, I, that intro music sounds pretty nice though. No, da- no. I mean, Daggerfall. And that was in- done with software synthesizers. Okay, now I'm done. Yeah. No, Daggerfall is an interesting sort of like one direction open world games could have headed. And it's probably for the best that they didn't. What? With like procedural generation out the wazoo. But I still love it. But it's still the best. Um, but it's interesting that like, you know, when you look at the path they did end up taking, uh, they um, hear... Uh, being um, somebody not Bethesda. Bethesda, Thank you. (laughs) It was just not coming to my head. Um, uh, But you know, the path they took with Morrowind and Obsidian, the way they introduced complexity was just, you know, more intensive, less about like, oh, the most expansive land possible. Because I do believe actually that Daggerfall remains the largest open world game rendered in 3D. I think it might Um, be too. Um, it, it's ridiculously large. It's, um, so stu- it's, so it's, stupid. it's stupidly large, yeah. <laughs> uh, but then you get like the radial, I believe it's called the radial relationship system that they introduced. I want to say an obsidian that they had to like cut back because it, the AI got too autonomous mm. that they would like, you know, they would make life decisions and all of a sudden you couldn't complete a quest <laughs> because some like, oh. you know. <laughs> blacksmith in a village had a midlife crisis and decided See, I find just that wanted to, to go brilliant. drown in a river that's a real game experience right like where yeah. all narrative yeah. is thrown out the window it is it is but it, it's talk about know. avant-garde no. <laughs> okay so i fact checked it and do either of you want to guess there is one game that's bigger than daggerfall and you could it is a game you could guess is it minecraft yes but what does that mean i guess it means that i googled it and it said minecraft is bigger potentially you could create a world in minecraft that's bigger i'm not sure because i'm not sure if minecraft i should ask my son about this yeah i was gonna say our kids yeah (laughs) i'm not i don't think that the minecraft world is when you create a minecraft world i don't think it actually is endless it's just huge it's just huge, 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 huge. And and yeah, but I'm not 100% sure about that. And I should look that up. I think up. it was Brendan Keough, who we interviewed, who's an Australian uh, game studies scholar that did a project 
where he was just like every day just going in the same direction in Minecraft and just like wandering in the same direction every day for a certain amount of time, desert bus style. Oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I think we interviewed him like a year and a half ago, maybe. Um one of our first interviews, in fact. So speaking of open worlds, I'll just, I'll get into like, I I hit like a kind of like gaming funk, which thankfully coincided with us taking a little bit of like holiday hiatus, winter hiatus from podcasting, where I just like wasn't enjoying games for like a month. Um, and a couple of games brought me out of it that I think you could argue are sort of open worlds. Um, one of them certainly, and one of them is a real question mark. But the one that's a real question mark is a little game called Lake, um, which I have a request out for an interview uh, that may or may not happen with the devs of this game um, who are, uh, I want to say Gamius. Yeah, Gamius is the uh, G-A-M-I-O-U-S. This is a midlife crisis mail delivery simulator. Um, It is one of the things that stood out to me about this game. It's uh, it's in 3D, you're delivering mail. One of the first things that stood out to me is that the protagonist, a woman named Meredith, uh, has crow's feet uh, next to her eyes, which I mean, think about it. Think about if you've ever seen an NPC or a player character, especially like a protagonist who's had crow's feet at all, um, let alone the like often hypersexualized or you know, very sort of tropish versions of 3D rendered women that we get in games. And it was just something like nice about that, like a person that like just had a lived in look. It looked like they actually lived. And, you know, she's working in the tech industry in the eighties doing some like programming for like database software, basically. And uh, she goes back to her, um, you know, the hometown or town she grew up in, which is this little lakeside town, um, and it's not even like a big vacation town. It's just like a little lakeside town. And she takes over her dad's mail route for a couple of weeks and realizes that she just is not sure whether or not she wants to go back to work, um, at least not back to work in tech um, and back to her life um, in the big city, as it were. And, you know, you've heard these, you know, that's almost the premise of like a Stardew Valley or any number of pastoral games but there's something about the way in which this game is an escapist it like doesn't let you leave these things behind like you do your mail route and after you finish your mail route you'll get phone calls or go out on dates or like just hang out with folks and like you'll inevitably get a phone call from your boss who's really excited about this deal for this day-to-day software and trying (laughs) to get you to do work during your vacation (laughs) you know and there's just something about that. And maybe it's in part because I'm an academic and the idea of not doing work during your vacation seems so foreign to me. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, there's just something like that got me back into playing a game by playing this. And it does have a nice, like nice story beats, but a lot of it is just listening to the radio in your mail truck and going around this very pleasant kind of like relatively low poly count uh, 3d, uh, small town, you know, and it was just, mm. it's nice, you know, and, um, you know, there's a lot of little subplots like a, a rental video store who you have the opportunity to date, um, the woman that's running it and her struggle to try to make a rental video store work in a small town when people are sort of like wary of VCRs. Um, yeah. So I don't know. That would, that was, 
it's just a nice game um yeah. with some substance actually i would say right like with some you know you don't get many games about folks in their 40s um and as somebody who is about to turn 40 uh it was nice to see that in a game um and then the other game that i've been playing is lost judgment which is a spin-off of the yakuza series a kind of like private eye detectives spinoff of the Yakuza series. So, you know, you're back in sort of like these sections of Tokyo, these neighborhoods, fictionalized versions of neighborhoods in Tokyo. Um, and it's open world, but it's like a kind of wonderfully cramped open world, hmm. like with mostly narrow streets and lots of little side stories and arcades that you can go in and play old Sega games in. Uh, I've done a lot of like just ra- you know playing old Sega racing games and motorcycle racing games and the like um just in between missions um but you know it's a game where you know I'm the like teacher slash adult advisor to a mystery or detective club at a high school um which happens in part because a lot of the game is about bullying and about murders that surround some bullying and some mm. suicides as well. So big content warnings for sexual assault, suicide, and everything in between, basically. Um, and I think it handles it okay, but not wonderfully. Um, it, it stumbles in places, but means well. And then sometimes it gets where it needs to go, but not until after it stumbles. Um, but, you know, it's also a game where I met a detective dog who helped me uh, find a boy who is being in process of being orphaned um, because his mother was like in debt to the Yakuza and, you know, you have to kind of solve the situation, but the dog helps, um, you know, it's a, you know, and it's a little beat em up game with three different fighting styles. So it's, a, it's good stuff. And it's just, it's got these heartwarming moments, but it's also got combat and it's got ridiculous characters like the Accuser series is always known for just like ridiculous uh, people uh, that don't make any sense, except that they're just wonderful, quirky individuals. And so, I don't know, those two games have gotten me out of kind of a funk of not really enjoying picking up a controller or playing on my laptop. Um, although I've been playing and I won't talk about them too much. I've been playing a lot of games on my Mac and trying to find out games that can be played on a Mac, mostly because I'm teaching a game studies and design course, and I have to be able to find games that can be on everybody's systems. And if a game is on a Mac, it's probably also on a PC, which means my students either have a PC or a Mac and they can play this game. Um, And so I've been playing a bunch of weird text adventures like Midnight Protocol and things like that, hacking games and things like that. Um, But the last thing I'll say is... uh, I've been playing lots of board games, like complex hmm. board games. So yeah. Arkham Horror, the card game I've been uh, learning how to play and playing, um, which has an insanity mechanic, or as they call it, mental trauma and horror. Um, that's, that's you know, it's got all the same problems. It's sort of interesting as a way of making a game hard and difficult. Yeah. But, you know, it's paying lip service to anything to do with mental health, obviously. Sure makes, sure makes waking up in the morning hard and difficult. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so, yeah, so I, that's what I've been doing, playing like board games and oh, card games great. and finding solo stuff. And I, there's a room in my house that we use as a guest bedroom. 
but when we don't have like the inflatable bed set up it's just like a room of bare carpet that i can shut the door in it is the quietest spot in the house and mostly i just sit there reading rule books and playing board games solo um or recently listening to the mountain goats um and you always like yeah. christian haynes's this is like christian haynes's introverted fantasy right like uh having the whole like room to yourself to listen to mountain goats and play i have a two-year-old so like silence is the most (laughs) beautiful thing in the world i would say so my my son the other day i just was like sitting and i was listening to i don't even remember what i was i think it was maybe it was probably transcendental youth or if it wasn't the jordan lake sessions because i listened to the jordan lake sessions a lot because it's just like a a greatest hits basically with fun patter from the band in between and my son just walked past me and was like oh cool dad the mountain goats and was like, like i've listened you raised to, them right i've listened to so much mountain goats over the course of his life that he just he he knows john darniel's voice probably better than he knows my singing voice like he just oh, it was very so good. without getting too behind the scenes on things uh i discovered that John Daniel has a separate agent for music and for his like publishing. And nice. so I am in the process of trying to get a hold of the booking agent, not for him as a musician, but as a as a writer right. Right. to get him to talk about like Wolf in a White Van and things like that. He plays magic well as, too. Lots he of plays magic. magic. He, you know, I remember listening to a sound advice interview where he very directly compared how he writes songs to building a magic yeah. the gathering deck. Oh, well, if funny. you interview him and you don't invite me, I'll quit the website. Yeah, forever. no, I know. So, yes, I know. It's all over. It's all um, over. But, but the I, end, I, it's like, no, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 go ahead. I, I'm going to make it through this year. Um, <laughs> the, it kills me. <laughs> the, uh, no, what I was, I was going to say is that I got um, root uh, recently as as part of uh, holiday gift exchange related things i got nice. uh, root and i got scythe um because i oh, actually cool. i had the um the art from the artist whose name is escaping me right now but the the artist who worked on all the design stuff for scythe i actually knew the art first uh before i knew about the game yeah, and i had one amazing. of one of the prints on on my wall uh, it's of a, a little girl in like a red uh, sort of hood, just absolutely. There's these knights that are hiding behind this house from a werewolf and the werewolf is bearing down on the village and the girl standing in the middle and absolutely selling the sword guys out so hard. She's just pointing like they're right there. She's just standing in the middle and just pointing right at them uh, so that uh, they can be they can be found and wolfed. Uh, down but anyway um i i've really enjoyed that's been kind of a balm for me too not the where well i like the werewolf art too uh because it suits my my own twisted sensibilities but the board games i mean have been things i've really enjoyed and yeah the problem is it's just it's expensive it's i think i think board games are to play the fancy the fancy pants like complicated ones, the really complicated ones would be a way more expensive hobby than video games. And I can already barely afford video games. So absolutely. No, it it truly is. And I mean, honestly, the only 
way I've been able to get some of these board games is through eBay bidding on games that are used but still in good shape, basically. Yeah. Board games that are used but still in good shape. And that doesn't bother me. I'm not like a pristine, everything has to be in pristine shape. Um, no. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a real... The tactility of it is nice. Um, the deck building being so prominent in so many uh, board games is a nice feature. Um, I'm going to try out, I think, a couple of those games that have like apps integrated for storytelling, which are kind mm. of useful if you're playing it solo. Because while I can get my partner to play some kinds of board games, I cannot get her to commit to a campaign. Yeah. Um, I am not- actually so annoyed. I recently bought the the Bloodborne board game. Oh, really? And you have to have at least three people to play. Oh. And it's so hard to find like three people That's to hard. hit that as a minimum. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Have you looked to see if there's any solo variants? Because that's a game that's popular it enough is. that somebody yeah. might have hacked a solo variant. Well, I've it heard is. that there's a... Uh, there's, Dark Souls uh, is a single player. Well, in the uh, there's a console version of the board game oh, this really? is the bloodborne card game actually. yeah and the, yeah that's yeah. what i mean there's the console version it was a ps4 exclusive and that's single player oh, oh right yeah you can go around and yeah that's pretty funny <laughs> thanks <Roger. laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thanks <laughs> i appreciate <laughs> <laughs> just acknowledging, just acknowledging that that's that's the choice I made. That's the choice you did I made. make that choice. But I'm it's it's you know what I made that choice though because it was really my sublimated regret because that I live so far away from you. I live like two time zones, three time zones away from you. And if I didn't, I would absolutely be there. I'd turn myself Aww. to two people if I needed to to play yeah. uh, to play the the Bloodborne board game. It would be you. fun. I wish. I think it's a fun. The game. minis look awesome. I looked at it at yeah. the store once. The minis look cool. Yeah. Well, this isn't the min. It's just the card game. Oh, the card game. That would still be fun. Game. I'd still yeah. play that with you. But the board game yeah. also looks like it has cool custom miniatures. Yeah. Why don't we move on to some of the TV shows we've been watching? Um, our non-game recommendations. Among- I had a book. Yeah, mine's a book, Christian. I, I'm not sure if that's yeah, allowed. I have, a, I have a TV show and a graphic novel. You might be able to do both of those. Um, Nate, fine. Share your stupid book. (laughs) (laughs) A regular book with no pictures or anything. Um, For parents, by the way, huge plug. If you haven't read it already, BJ Novak's book with no pictures is like the best children's book. It's so funny and fun. It is hilarious. What is it Um, called? It's called, it's just, it's the book with no pictures. And uh, there's no pictures in it and a lot of other really silly stuff ensues. And awesome. uh, it's, it's meta and funny and fun for kids too. I've been reading this book to my kid for like four years now and he's still not tired of it. Um, but uh, no, I've been reading Catherine Addison's the goblin emperor because I am in a pretty good stage of my dissertation now i'm kind of in the home stretch and i've spent you know so much of the last few years on this project and kind of on on not much else i kind of started to lose um the things i i loved about reading you know I'd, i'd kind of started to lose track of a lot of that and the things that i've always loved about reading are like doorstopper size like fantasy novels 
which of course there's a there's a paperback edition of Goblin Emperor that's not doorstopper size, but it's still it's it's long enough. It's a decent sized book, and so I've been trying to tap back into that and and learn to enjoy that kind of stuff again. I certainly have time, uh, kind of. I mean. I don't have time, but I have nowhere to go. So is, I guess, more what I mean. Um, so anyway, I, I've been reading or like uh, Samantha Shannon's uh, Priory of the Orange Tree. That's another great big doorstopper that's really fun and nice. But uh, the Goblin Emperor is really has become really special to me because uh, so it's the it's a story about how have either of you encountered it at all? Do you know anything? OK, then I won't. Uh, I will try to summarize briefly but it, like it's a story about there's this world and there's elves and goblins and people are for i mean there's a not that many people who are like necessarily full elf or full goblin there's a lot of intermarriage between elves and goblins and there's that's not how fantasy works it is how it works take it up with katherine addison um <laughs> which is a, a pseudonym. So you'll have a hard time finding uh, uh, the person you really want to talk to. You won't. It's on the internet. It's very easy to find. Um, but uh, so there's this guy who's like technically a member of the Royal family. He's half goblin and he was never supposed to hold any sort of authority at all. He was kind of shoved out and, and made to sort of live with this other actually fairly abusive relative in this middle of nowhere place. And then all of a sudden, the entire royal family together dies in an airship crash. It's kind of a, got kind of a steampunk thing going to it. There's gaslights and airships and stuff. They all die. And all of a sudden, Maya is the emperor. He's the emperor. He's in charge of everything. And so it's about this guy sort of, you know, going to court and there's a lot of courtly intrigue and figuring out like, uh, how do I handle this situation and how am I supposed to talk to this person and how do I even behave myself because I don't know what it is to deal with other people because I was raised in the middle of nowhere. But the thing that has really drawn me to it is not just that the character sketches are really succinct and really good. The author is really, really good at making characters come to live in like a paragraph, which I, I think is an admirable skill. But, uh, and I think this is actually something that uh, uh, I first noticed when a Washington Post reviewer brought it to my attention. Um, the Goblin Emperor is a really speculative book about good government. It's about what if a person, what if the government ended up in the hands, even by accident, of a person who genuinely had good intentions, who was trying to do well, who sincerely cared about his people, who also was aware of his weaknesses and the things that he couldn't change or couldn't do, at least not overnight. But it's really, it's become a compelling sort of maybe escape <laughs> for me, but but it, it's be, it was really compelling for me and that it, it sort of helped me 
think through that more clearly. It, it, it gave me an optimism that I had forgotten was possible. Not necessarily for, uh, I don't know. It's hard to put my finger on exactly where the optimism lies, but it's a, it's a cool story about someone who tries to perform the act of governing well. And that thinks about how challenging that is at the same time as thinking about where some of its successes could be. And I enjoyed it for that reason. And it's a cool book. I'll just quickly plug that I'm reading a book that also is about good government or the possibility of good government, which is uh, Ken Liu's uh, Dandelion Dynasty series and specifically The Wall of Storms, the second one in it, which I mean, I I don't want to talk too much about it. Yeah, they're so it, long. They're so huge. They're huge, they are but... very long. I'm I'm thankful that the last two are well. The third one came out in December, which is why I'm rereading the series is to get up to that third one. And the fourth one I think comes out in June, and then it's done. Um, but they each one gets longer. So like the third one is about a thousand pages, and the fourth one I think is like twelve hundred. Um, oh gosh! But I revel That's in awesome. it. I revel That's in exactly it. what I've been missing. Yes. Yeah. They're, the and characters are really well. I, I read the first one, The Grace of Kings, and the characters are really well sketched out. They're great. I, it's like, it's got this like Machiavellian quality. And I don't mean that in the like, it's content, but like in Machiavelli writing about government, it was always like, okay, like if this happens, then this happens. So we have to think about how power distributes itself this way, this way, and this way. And the novel mm-hmm. kind of reads that way, but fun like lots of fun um, and with these rich characters sort of playing out these positions, there's a real kind of like way in which their treatises on the art of government. Um, and uh, before he was a professional writer and translator um, for folks that don't know, Ken Liu translated the three body problem and is probably the most important translator of Chinese sci-fi into English. Um, he's done a number of anthologies as well, um, but he was a tax attorney. Uh, before all that. And you can tell he mm-hmm. loves talking about taxes. And I love hearing Ken Lu talk about that's taxes. Great. That's um, great. But yeah, but that's not my recommendation. My recommendation. Um, Cause that's a book and Christian doesn't recommend yeah, books. I, I don't like nope, books. He doesn't. <laughs> I don't like books. I'm not even teaching about books anymore, despite being an nope. English professor. Um, uh, but my recommendation, two TV shows. I won't talk about one very much just because I'm still in the middle of it. Uh, but I am watching Station Eleven. Yes. Uh, which is great so far. I love the book as well. Emily St. John Mandel, I think, is a wonderful writer. I like uh, both Station Eleven and The Glass Hotel immensely. Um, and I'm looking forward to her new novel, which is coming out in a couple of months, um, which seems to be very much a science fiction novel in some ways. Um, but station 11, you know, it's post-apocalyptic, but instead of focusing on everything that's gone wrong, though it does do that, it's really focusing on this crew of theatrical performers and musicians who are trying to just brighten up the place and preserve some kind of legacy of art and play Shakespeare. And their, their slogan actually comes from a Star Trek Voyager episode, uh, which is survival is insufficient. And it was just, you know, it just got great actors. Um, and it's just, it's a great show with, and I, I'm, as folks might know from conversations that we've had on the show before, I like adaptations that diverge from their source material. Mm. And I think they made some really smart choices about how they diverged in the show. And sometimes there's a part of me that like resists it, but I always know it's the right choice for the show. And, you know, you got the book. 
Um, but the I think you are- have. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Cause I was going to switch. I think that like there are shows that like there are reasons for the adaptation to be like different because of the format. Right. But I think there's also, there are also um, really interesting adaptations that are in a kind of dialogue with the original source. And those are my favorite where it's like, there's actually a kind of conversation happening. And I think we're going to talk about one of those in a little bit um, for you, Roger. Uh, um, Yeah. You didn't even know it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the other show I wanted to recommend to folks, which I have to admit, I was like so skeptical of was, is a TV show version of uh, Snowpiercer. Um, I'm a big fan of the film, um, as well as the graphic novels, the bidet, uh, Ben Desine, um, their great sort of post-apocalyptic train, uh, tales, you know, a train that goes around the world and preserves the last of the human species. Uh, but the TV show is really good. Actually, the TV show is really good. Um, the only actor I knew in it from uh, outside of this show is Jennifer Connelly, uh, who plays one of the leads and is great. Uh, but there's just everybody. I think almost everybody is pretty great in this show. And it's just a brilliant examination of class and revolution and um, the structures that make us do the things we do. And there's just something wonderful, I think, too, at a moment where... Uh, I feel like class conflict has become both heightened, but also harder to talk about because mm-hmm. sometimes folks lean so hard into the, we're all in this together quality of the pandemic that they forget that, yeah, we might all be affected by the pandemic, but we're not necessarily all being affected by it in the same way. Some of us right. has much nicer cushions than others, for example. Um, financial questions. And so, I don't know, this show is a stark reminder of that inequality. And so, and it's just, it's enjoyable too. Is the show, um, like, is it, does it recount the same storyline as the original, as the movie, or is it separate, a separate story? I think it's pretty separate. I think it just kind of walks with the premise. Um, It introduces some beats from both the film well, more from the comics and the film uh, earlier than the comics do, which is an interesting choice. Um, and I won't say what that is because I think it's interesting to find out for yourself. Um, it diverges in really interesting ways, I would say. Uh, okay. Yeah. And I, and I will say also, it's a TNT show that happens to be on HBO Max for some reason. Um, and one of the other nice things about watching the show and is enjoying it is that my skepticism about the fact that TNT is also making the broken earth series from NK Jemison uh, is somewhat alleviated. Um, I think that's a show that needs a high, like a much higher CGI budget. So we'll see. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, it's going to be hard to adapt. I might eat my words, yeah. but that's going to be a hard. Oh no. I expect to it to be pretty bad, to be honest. Um, but I'm all yeah, about NK Jemison getting they'll, money. I mean, they'll have to like kind of like the whole perspective stuff in the first novel. I just can't even imagine how you would set that up. I mean, so you know what a show that kind of did that was a version uh, of that, The Witcher, the first season of uh, The Witcher, played uh, with time in a way that's not the same but analogous to that. Hmm. Um, hmm. 
But yeah, so I don't know. I, that's kind of mm. what I've been doing. And then the, my partner and I are watching the last season of The Expanse, um, which I you know, won't even talk about because we've talked about The Expanse before, I'm pretty sure. Um, and uh, I don't want to give away anything for folks who maybe haven't yeah, watched it. Yeah, it's my next show. It's, my it's next really show. good. It's re- I think it's really worth watching. It is a show that gets stronger every season. It's one of the few shows where I get to the last season and I don't think they probably should have ended it two seasons ago. Mm. That's only thinking, took over. Oh, go ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say, instead of thinking, I wish I was going to get two more seasons, which is mm-hmm. not, I mean, which is how you should, you know, end the TV and show. Net- Netflix took it, no, Amazon. Amazon, Amazon took only took over. over for two seasons, right? Like they're only five and ultimate. six. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. So, and, it, and they're ending in a logical place because there's a 24 year time jump in the books from what I understand. Um, and so they're not making the time jump and doing the next books after the time jump, but it's sort of a logical place apparently where they're ending. They should just make a movie now for the time jump. Yeah, Firefly style. That's what I was uh, going to yeah. say. Serenity, Deadwood yeah. style. Yeah, Deadwood style. Yeah. Oh God, the Deadwood movie was so disappointing though. Yeah. Uh, okay, Roger. Okay. Glorious so with comics and Christian's going to probably shows. be able to talk about this more than I can because I have not read the book. I actually am um, more the, interested in your perspective than I am now. The books. So, um, but I have a long history with this series that I've never read, um, which is um, I was in high school when Eye of the World came out and all of my high school friends wanted me to read it. And I was like, nope. And mm-hmm. uh, in grad school, I had grad school friends who wanted me to read it. And I was like, nope. And now it's coming out as, as, as the series. And so I'm kind of intrigued. I've, I've, I've heard. So it, literally I, we had somebody in our D and D group when I was in high school, who every one of their characters was a character from a character name from like the wheel of time. And so like, I knew, I know all the character names, but not who the characters are. Cause they were different characters in the D and D campaign that I was in. And so I just have a lot of weird nostalgia for the series that I never experienced before. Um, and I had a lot of fun with it. I wouldn't say so. Um, I don't quite know. I, again, having not read the book, I don't quite know the place of this series within the fantasy genre, what it's what it's known for or, 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 or what it's supposed to represent to people who are fans. But, um, you know, for me, I know that there are a lot of people who are, I remember seeing a lot of criticism of the first book saying it was, it seemed pretty derivative of Lord of the Rings. And there are a lot of like story beats that sort of replicate different parts of, of Lord of the Rings, which is, which is cool. It's fine. But um, a group of people go out of a small town to take on a big adventure. Yeah. And there was literally this one part where Moraine was like, they were in, it wasn't like a, like, you know, I, what is it they go into the where where Gandalf fights the Balrog that moment the Mines of Moria there's, Mines of Moria there's literally a moment where I was like oh I was kind of worried that Moraine was going to bite it even though she didn't right where I was like oh this is her Gandalf moment because I was seeing those parallels so so directly with all so many different other elements of the story um having said that like I just I just enjoy it like I I think it's great that they've adapted it. I never thought that they would adapt something of this length. Um, and I, you don't see a lot of high fantasy, I think, on TV. And um, they do it really well. Uh, Rosamund Pike, I think, is so great in this series. 
Um, I previously only knew her from Gone Girl and um, that Netflix movie she did a, a year or two ago. Um, I care a lot, which is actually really great. They're both really great, but she usually, I think, from my experience, she sort of plays in these kind of um, these dramas that are also somewhat satirical about about um, contemporary culture and sexuality and 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 things like that. Um, so it, it was a very different role for her, and just the way that she that she played it off, I thought was really really good, and and I it gave me a, a new appreciation for her as an actor, um, and. Um, so yeah, like that's just kind of, I, I just enjoyed it a lot. I thought the ASDI as this, as this powerful woman uh, culture of magic was really cool. I thought it was kind of cool to see, and I know this, 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 this book series came out in the nineties. And I think some, a part of it is the, is that there's a kind of multiculturalism, maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading into that, or maybe that's the TV series. I'm not sure, but I thought that that was interesting to see uh, in the tale um and overall I, I just had a lot of fun with it so it's if you're into fantasy high fantasy particularly i think it's something to check out that's great to hear yeah, yeah. that's great to hear like because i was worried if they admit watching it as somebody who's read the books i was a little worried about how it would translate to folks that hadn't read the books just because it felt so compressed to me that i was like mm. i wonder to what degree i'm filling in some of the gaps here if that makes sense I didn't get a sense. I was never really that confused. That's nice. That's nice. Thing. Yeah. That's always tricky when you're translating from a book, you know, um, especially right. a book that has like lore and a magic system and all that. Um, and that's, I'm glad you liked it. Um, yeah. And so what is this paper girl? I actually do know. So I don't know if y'all have read, have either of you read paper girls before? No, I haven't. Okay. I so didn't Frank finish Hayvon, it. Yeah. Frank Hayvon. Okay. So I was the same as you, Christian. When I hated the first... opening of this book, like with a passion. I want really it. with the with the with the astronaut and stuff. Uh, like tripping. not the very opening, but as soon as iPhones and things like that started showing up, I was kind of out. Yeah, that was pretty weird. But like, I just thought it was hilarious. Um, this is this is Brian K. Vaughn's, I think, tribute to the scrappy kid group '80s kind of Goonies type of movie. Um, and I just remember when it first came out, um, I was really into it and I love Cliff Chang as an artist. Uh, I love the fact that I think it was like 2012 when it came out. So it's been a while. Um, but I love that, you know, you had all this group of really interesting characters at the forefront. I love the eighties references that were constantly being thrown around. I did find it to be the first and I, I find this to be the case of a lot of these long form sort of comic series where there's so many intricate levels of character relationships that I lose them in the monthly sort of the monthly uh, issue uh, grind, you know? And so um, I remember telling myself, you know, when this is done, I'm just going to read the whole thing. Um, and I'm really glad I did. I thought that it was a really interesting storyline a lot there's a lot in there about growing up what does it mean to grow up there's there's a lot of scenes where the characters who they're um you know 12 and 13 in the 80s um end up in this time traveling adventure and they see their future selves and they are totally unimpressed with their future selves which i thought was i mean it's not an uncommon trope but it's but it was interesting enough to get into that kind of interaction um 
And there's just this bigger, there's this interesting war between what they call the old timers and the youngins who are both um, fighting in this, this time war between one another. And, and, and there's just a lot in there about what it means to grow up, what it means to embrace your identity or not. Um, You know, uh, what does it mean to face your own mortality and things like that? And so I just thought it was a really, really fun series. Definitely a worthy addition to Brian K. Vaughn's other, other well-written series. So, yeah, yeah, I was going to, I was going to ask, is he writing this instead of writing more saga? Because if he's writing he's that, done with of, good. I, I send, I don't think it's Brian K. Vaughn. I think it's Fiona Staples. Yeah. Honest. Like she, yeah. like Brian K. Vaughn can write like five or six series at the same time. It'd be fine. Yeah. He's well, always like, art, the art's very good. So I'm not, I'm good. not, I'm not really complaining. I'm tongue in cheek complaining. I just really want to know what happens in saga. Right. Like I got the, I got the, the big omnibus or whatever. Me too. And I shared it with my girlfriend and she was like, okay, so where's the rest of it? And I'm like, Oh, that's like half. And like, maybe the next half will come out in 10 years. Yeah. It's, we'll it's one out. of the only comics my partner and I both read and she doesn't read much comics. And it's definitely like the temporality of comics, especially comics that come out of image comics, the company, uh, is like, you know, like, I don't know if I'll ever get to see Jonathan Hickman complete one of his independent right. like, works ever again in my life. I feel like the days of Jonathan Hickman finishing anything are long gone. Um, if it's I, not was so, I was so excited by uh, Ed Brubaker and Michael Lark's Lazarus. That's like one of my favorite series. Oh my from God. And now it's like a quarterly that releases every six months. It's never going to finish. Like they're just no. going to stop at some point. Yeah, I think they'll do a really hasty wrap up, a hasty wrap up that will be sad. I would recommend Lazarus to folks though. Um, yeah, Greg Rucka, yeah, is great. Michael Lark's art is beautiful um, in a rough way that's perfectly appropriate to the subject matter. The thing about Lazarus, really quick, I love the end. Like the, he'll often have the uh, whether they're by letters or whatever, like his own world building. He'll talk about everything he's researched. And some of it's conspiracy theory, but some of it's like, yeah, this is actually happening where he'll talk about, you know, the Lazarus or the corporations taking over the, the planet or or widespread pandemic. So it's actually really cool to get into his to get into his kind of like afterwards that are usually with every issue. That's what sort of got me hooked on that series. So folks, we gave you, I don't know, like nine or 10 recommendations of books, TV shows, comics. So, you, you know, don't say we never did anything for you. That's all I'm saying. <laughs>